0: Okay, so we are still in chap. Well, we in essence finished chapter six last week together and started talking about chapter seven. And let me just remind you where we are in the book, especially because we had a different crowd last week than today. And except for Donna, I believe right, Donna and Carol, you guys were both here last week. So, I, I got the last oh, you were here 15. too. I the last 15 minutes. That's true. I, you did. You did step in. You weren't here when we started. Yeah. Um, but just for a helpful reminder, because it is, the book is filled with so much stuff that even if you're reading it all the time, it already is confusing, let alone once a week and then, you know, you have a busy week or something, you come and sit down and it takes a mile, I feel like it takes a minute for everything to settle in the brain as we start interacting it. So we, we do want to look at chapter seven today some more, but we'll we'll review big picture stuff again, chapters one through twenty-two. And it might feel like it gets old to repeat it, but you'd be surprised if you just think back two months ago and uh, how, how familiar you felt with the book. If you're just reading it, just every, if you're just reading every other week or something, you can make that a goal to read it once a month or once every two weeks, the book itself. You'll be surprised how much that you are familiar with the, with the idea, the essence of the book, than, than previously, just, just by mere time looking at it and reflecting on it that's a that's not something to be underestimated not the like hey I've, I've comprehended everything but just just the fact that you have the words in your mind those things those things sit there and they do they do work behind the i don't want to say consciousness but there's a part of your brain that works outside of what's in the front and so a lot, a lot of times you you put it in there and then when you're not focusing on it it's your brain is still doing something with it in the back of your mind if you want to think of it that way and reading does that. You read it, and it's, it's, it's in there. You might not know what it's doing, but it's working. So there's 22 chapters. That's part of why I try to repeat it every week. It just kind of gets you, oh yeah, 22 chapters, and um, the beginning is fairly easy to remember, right? There's a vision of who Jesus is. This is a, a revelation from and about Jesus, and uh, he's described just like God is in that first chapter. It starts off with this big, grandiose revelation of a man with eyes of fire, hair uh, that is white as wool, and he's wearing a, a priestly garment, and he's walking among lampstands, and it represents him as the one who takes care of the church and who can maintenance her. So he corrects her, he instructs her, he gives her oil, he makes sure that she's working properly. And then throughout the letters... He keeps saying it in the beginning of each letter, I know you, I know your works, I know where you live, I know what's happening, I know, I know, I know, I know. And the, the general feel of Revelation is a heaviness because what God has to say to the church is, for the most part, is you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And he gives them correction with the exception of two, two churches. So it's a pretty, it's got more of a, an urgent, but like not, not that he's angry, but you get a sense like this is important. Right, And then you need to change it. And then then we get into chapters 4 and 5 where we see the one speaking, the one who's speaking to the churches is none other than the ruler of the whole world. The lamb who was slain to the right hand of the father, and now he's been given the book. And we talked about the authority to rule, to what, whatever, like maybe an inheritance uh, right or something, but it represents his power and authority over everything. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so the message he has to the church is important. It gives... It gives weight to everything that he is that he is saying, and what we've what we what I've proposed and what we're, how we're reading the book is that the vision that follows in the book. So everything that's in black up there, this is going to be for today, the seals. But this is more of a summary up there. Everything that follows from chapters four and five and on, so six through twenty, or nineteen, all that series of visions, we we are going to be reading those as if that is something that's describing everything that's been happening since Christ's ascension and until his return. So just look at all, this is just, if you've been reading the book, you'll notice there are are so many different visions from 6 through 19. There are three sevens, the seals, trumpets, and bowls. They're very similar. They seem to be parallel to each other. There's a vision of a dragon and a woman representing Satan going after the people of God or maybe Mary. But she gives birth to Jesus, and then she's protected and then there's a beast and there's a false prophet, who are basically the false Trinity. the dragon, the beast and the false prophet. They represent the, the underside, right? the bad, the bad Trinity. There's also a, a harlot we read about her not too long ago, um, the Babylon, the great city. And there's also, further into the vision, there's a, the Bride of Christ. Or kind of like the city of God. There are these two women in the book and two cities. And there's also a vision of two witnesses, the two witnesses of God, and there's also a vision about the temple of God in chapter 11. So there's lots of images, and all of them, we're all going to understand them to be working together to describe the present age, the age that we live in, the time of the rule of the Lamb. And all of them, all the chaos that we see, they're all revealed to us in light of this Lamb in chapters 4 and 5, who rules over everything. He's in charge. He has the book. He's got all the, I don't know what's supposed to be in there, but he's got all the authority and power to make declarations. And throughout the book, there are all these passive verbs. Um, I want—I just want you to run, run through it a little bit with me so that you get a feel of what I'm saying. So if you are there with your Bible and you want to open up to chapter 9. Uh, for instance. We're, I'm just going to try to pick out a few of these, what I mean by the passive verbs, where things start happening in the vision, and then it says something like, this was allowed, this was given. And it doesn't tell you who gave it, but the assumption is that in chapters 4 and 5, it's the one sitting on the throne who has declared it. That's that's the repeated drum of the book over and over again. So, for example, in, in chapter 9, um, We'll read this one. This is about the fifth trumpet, right? We're not looking at the fifth trumpet. We're just going to look at some passive verbs. The fifth uh, angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. He was given. See that? He was given. He didn't take. He was given. It doesn't tell you who gave the key. It just says it was given to him. And the underlying assumption is that the one who's in charge of everything is handing out all of these passive verbs. The lamb is in charge of every chaotic, crazy thing that happens in the vision of Revelation. He was given the... Where am I? He opened... He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Uh, then skip down to verse 4. Whatever comes out, was they were told. doesn't tell you who said it. It's just presuming a lot of these passive verbs, it's the one in charge who's telling. The lamb is telling... And ordering everything that happens throughout uh, this book, verse five, they were allowed to torment for five months. Who is allowing? Who is permitting? Who is giving? It's presumably the Lamb who's sitting on the throne. So throughout the rest of the vision, uh, you, you could almost jump down to any chapter. You're going to have things like this. So let's let's find, uh, let's find another one. So chapter eleven, right? We were in chapter nine. Let's just go to chapter eleven real quick don't worry about you know all these vis- all these symbols that we're going to see just look at these passive verbs that i'm telling you about so verse 11 verse 1 then i was given who gave him who gave this individual something we presumably the lamb is the one handing this out Uh, measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God and altar and those who worship there but do not measure the outer court the court outside the temple leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months who's doing the giving again it's not specified but it's throughout the whole book it's always implied it's the lamb the only one who has authority to give anybody over to anything Verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Again, it's the Lamb who's giving authority, who is giving. He's giving, he's giving time frames for evil scorpions to do their work. He's giving time frames to, for his witnesses to prophesy. He's giving time frames for the nations to rule. He's in charge of everything throughout almost every chapter in, in this book. Let's just look a, a little bit more. I, th- I think you probably already got the, the hint, but let me just give you like um, another one. So, the great beast. So chapter 13. Jump over to chapter 13 real quick. Chapter 13, verse 5. This is the big, nasty beast who, if he's an individual, if he represents, we'll get to that at some point. But just notice again, whatever he does or is doing, or for how long he does it, he's not the one deciding that. Verse 5. The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. So, even the beast's Desire to blaspheme and to say all kinds of nonsense and to influence people, it has been granted from the heavenly throne room. You notice that? Like, it's these passives are over and over again, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. The beast doesn't even have like the right to decide what time it's going to start blaspheming, it's all dictated from the throne room. And this is not just New Testament, this is. Old Testament type of imagery of, of God deciding when kingdoms rise and fall. Yeah, I'm going to allow him to do that. I'm going to grant the Medes and the Persians the right to take over uh, the... No, it wasn't Greece. It was, it was the opposite era. I'm going to allow the Medes and the Persians to take over Babylon. And then I'm going to grant the Greeks authority to rule over them. That's how the Old Testament describes Yahweh, the ultimate one in charge. And that's how Revelation is portraying the Lamb. Right, this is one of the big themes of the book. Jesus is in charge of everything. And here you have it spelled out. And all these different symbols and imageries and visions, they all have this underlying implying statement, given, granted, and time frame. It's all meant to draw us back to, oh my gosh, it's the lamb, the slain lamb who's ruling over everything. He's not necessarily like fighting for control. Do you see the difference in that? <clears throat> He's not like, oh, we are at this battle, and we got to keep going until we win. It's, like, it's not even like that. Jesus is saying, yeah, we're going to have a battle, and I know what time it is and how long it's going to last, and I know how many of the forces are allowed to be in it. I'm going to release them to do certain things. Like it's, it's never a question of who's really in charge. He's, he's, he's even declaring the battle. He, that's his prerogative. And that's the same thing we have in the book of Acts with Peter saying, Hey, this whole thing about Jesus being handed over to the authorities, that was determined by God the Father. He determined that he would be betrayed and handed over. It wasn't simply a, a mere happenstance. So that that's a very strong, sometimes overlooked theme that's just implied in the visions, is how much control Jesus has. And that's something the church needed to hear. Right? The church that's sitting around in chapters 2 through 3, those... Five churches that needed correction, they needed to be reminded that the God that they serve and who's telling them to go witness and be a light it 's not an optional thing for them they shouldn 't be just thinking, well may well <laughs> we 'll think about it you know things are tough here God like he 's the lamb, and uh, he has appointed for them good things he's appointed for them difficult things he 's appointed for them all kinds of things it 's not really up to them to make that choice you know, and the good churches the two good churches they in, uh, the letters they seem to be the ones who have the hardest task too like the good church the first one we find God's like yeah you're a good chunk of you are probably gonna die and Satan's gonna put you in prison for about 10 days be faithful unto death you know so that it, there's a heaviness to, to some of that but the the sovereignty of God is meant to really balance that for for the church he is on the throne he is ruling and chaos is not a sign of his lack of ruling, right? That's, in the, in the human sphere, that's a little bit of what it represents. When there's chaos and disorder, it's because the person in charge isn't doing things right or properly. That's usually the implication, right? The person at the top gets blamed. You know, things aren't going well. Regardless of whose fault it is, the ultimate person, the, the mayor, the governor, the president, they, they get the, they get, you know, we're gonna move on from you because we don't like the results. But in in this case, God's saying, he has determined even these difficult times. It's not a sign of his lack of lack of control. So there, there's just a little bit to remind us of what we're reading. And um, I'd like to say one more thing about all these images and ideas. But before I do that, is there anything that this jogs in your memory? A thought? An idea? Something, maybe nothing to do with any of that, but anything revelation-esque that we can take a minute? I'd always like to try to make time for that as we... Talk. Sometimes random things come into the mind, you know, and they're very interesting to think about. About revelation-wise, but what you were just saying about, you know, the Medes and the Persians and all these things with the time frames,
1: God is still doing that today. Mm -hmm. You know, and we've got wars, and you know, He He knows when they're going to start. He allowed that, and when they're going to
0: end, and who's. How many people are getting killed? That's right. I feel like it's a very. um, We're being asked to respond differently to the chaos Mm -hmm. when we're reading the book this way than what I think sometimes the atmosphere is in the Christian circles when there's wars and chaos. It's just like, you know, we're. This is going to happen and then it's going to be the end. It's like, mm-hmm. Do we really believe the lamb is reigning? Like, oh my gosh, if this happens now, if, you know, this, this might lead to, you know, let's say there is a World War III and then we're all going to die. No, the lamb has already determined how this is going to go. It can't go that way. There is not going to be a nuclear holocaust on the planet and there will be no earth. That's not a possibility in the book of Revelation in our minds it could be theoretically oh man if that guy lets loose his nukes and then you know we're we're all going to be extinct no so that that's not a direction that is a, is an option for us because we've been told already more or less what's going to be happening and where things are going so yes dennis that's very much the case <clears throat> all right well one one small thing i was going to mention is just that uh, Sometimes this comes up, which is like, why? Why, why, are, why is there so much imagery? Why so many symbols? You know, we saw from chapter 1, even in, in the letters, there's, there's symbols, there's imagery. There's, you know, in the letters to the churches, there's things like, God's like, yeah, if you overcome, I'm going to give you the secret manna. It's like, what? Where is it? Stuff we've never heard before in the Bible. Like, secret manna? God's been hiding secret manna from us for all these years? I don't know if you remember, each church has like a little blessing if they obey. And one, and that one is like, you're going to get a stone with a new name on it. And it's like, well, where, where was this? You know, when, when did we hear about the, the special stone? We've, it hasn't been mentioned anywhere. So there's stuff like that happening. And the question is always like, well, why does it have to be such weird symbolic language in the book? I don't know if you've thought about it. That, because that's what makes things confusing, isn't it? Is that we have symbols and... One thing we've never heard of, and another thing you know is is over here, so what is the point of symbolic imagery? It's just one thing I just wanted for us to hit on for a little bit it it uh it's not the easiest for us to we'd prefer a more straightforward God saying, "Hey, this is what I want to tell you, you know, shape up or else like it'd be much easier instead it's like watch out for Jezebel and there's balaam and and this and and discern this, and then here's an image of a woman and then you know. Sh- there's the sun and the moon, and then there's a baby coming out. That's all in here. And there's an angel blowing trumpets, and there's angels pouring bowls. Like, God, why can't you just tell us what you want to say instead of using all this confusing stuff? So, Can
1: I just, can I just interject there? This is the way um, I read the Bible. As soon as a question like that comes up, I, I try and equate it to, where else do you see that? And these questions that you're just saying, I hear out of the mouth of the disciples saying, Lord, why do you talk in parables? Why don't you just come out and say what it is that you mean? Mm -hmm. And his answer to them was um, a matter of desiring to understand. Um, Those that will have eyes to seek are going to understand. Those that have a critical eye, that don't really want to know, it's going to be nonsense. And I feel like maybe that's why the energy is the way it is. Similar to when Jesus was here, he verbally gives parables. He's not here, so he kind
0: of gives us parables by visions. Yeah. Uh, there's probably two places where Jesus says exactly that. Mark 4 and Matthew 13 are that's exactly where the disciples asked the question, and he gives them an exact answer. And it's not the answer we're usually thinking that it is. Mm-hmm. And if I could just resummarize what you said, Pam, is basically... He says, I'm doing it to make it harder. And sometimes we think, oh, you speak this way to like to, to illustrate, to make it easier for us to understand. Oh, you're giving me an analogy so that I can... Sometimes we think that's what's happening. And then we're trying really hard to go the opposite way when when actually the answer Jesus gives in, Math, in Matthew 13 and Mark 4 is, I'm doing it, their hearts may be hardened. So one reason why symbolic or poetic imagery is used <clears throat> is that it... It hardens certain people. Like I, Whatever, I don't care. Yeah, I didn't wanna know anyway. Now I really don't wanna know. It, it, the stronger, harsher language and symbols causes certain people to respond negatively. And that's on purpose. Because maybe that's what they don't really want to hear it anyway. They don't wanna, oh, that means I have to try now and I have to think about this? No thank you. Purple the Sower? Jesus, what? Who? Who was the seed? What's? What's? What's this supposed to be? And people are just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, so, that's a negative view. But that's a, that's one view Jesus says he uses the parables is to hide the truth inside of this nugget, and then those who want to go find it, they have to go hack at the outer shell until they get to the to the thing. So, there, so one one reason is it is it makes it a little harder, and it hardens people who already are hardened to to the truth. The second thing is, is the flip side is that the, those who want to hear it are going to have to go pursue it now. There's something they're going to have to do to go get the truth that Jesus is communicating. We've got to pay a little bit more attention. We have to read Revelation more than once. You're not, we're not going to get this book by reading it once and sitting through our time together. You're just going to be more confused because you're waiting for the answer to just hit you. It's not going to happen that way. It's going to, you're going to have to reread it. Several times, I encourage you to read it every other week or so it 's not that long of a book, actually. You just have to let go of the idea of understanding everything. just read it, and certain things will hit you in the face differently, but it just takes more time and a little bit more effort for you to play play with it and uh It forces us then to also bring other parts of the Bible into play. We have to try i don 't want to say try harder, but we have we have to just take take our time go slower rethink it and what it does it puts us in a position of asking god for for help we have to stop and we have to say uh lord i don't know what this is can you help me like we are the, our posture becomes more show me you know teach me It it makes it makes us bring out that i really want to know lord what you have to say for all parts of scripture but especially for symbolic language we have to go slower and sometimes oh i think i got it don't Don't hold that so tightly. Oh, I figured out who the beast is. Just be like, okay, this is a thought. And then you keep and you go and you reread it and you rethink it. It's uh it's meant to get us engaged and to get us to think and it's meant to draw us in. So that's why we repeat one through twenty-two in the beginning, every time. Let me rethink about this, let me remember what I'm reading. It's meant to get us fully into the to the text, into the story. Okay, yeah, Joe. You had your hand up.
1: A hundred dollar bill, you wouldn't just go, ah, I'll find another one somewhere. You'd be looking for a long time or, until you found it.
0: Yeah, uh, so that, that's exactly the point. Those are those, the those, I had though, was, With imagery and things, like we were in chapter six, we talked about the horses weren't naturally just horses, could be just symbolizing power. But then you get down farther. And talks about people under the altar were they really people we assume they
1: are but i mean how do you know when it's imagery and when it's not
0: is there a thought for that yeah so that's a really good question for the book as a whole as we encounter various images and symbols or whether they're symbols or are they not symbols right that's how do we make that determination in the book it's really hard halfway through a book to do that. And so you need to use the whole book. That that will help somewhat. Because then we feel like, okay, the whole book is, okay, we found a bunch of other parts where they're very clear that it's symbols. It helps us look at some places that, uh, I feel like it could go the other way here. You know, so we, we do that. And then on top of that, we use the whole Bible. And we look at the Bible. Where are other places in the Bible where these things show up again? And, and what what were they like back then? <clears throat> so. For the four horsemen question specifically, right? here. So here are the seven seals. We notice the first four kind of go together, and they seem to equate to what we read from Ezekiel, the four judgments of God on unbelieving or or nations, how he deals with nations. He unleashes these four judgments of his that involve the wild animals go nuts, there's famine, there's natural disasters, and there's war with the sword. So they seem to correspond not like perfect four, 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 but they seem to be like in that same ballpark. And that's something John does a lot. This is what makes um, Revelation and difficult, is that he seems a lot to go into the Old Testament bag of symbols. He, he takes them out, and then he's like, you know what, I'm going to paint a picture with them. I'm going to do something. I'm going to use them, but I'm going to put them in a different order. I'm going to put them on a different background. And so that's what makes this so hard but overall when you when you look at Revelation. So this is my answer kind of saying like when we finish the whole thing uh I think this will make more sense. But what you're going to see throughout the whole book, especially for Ezekiel and uh Ezekiel's the main one that John seems to be using, the book of Ezekiel with all like the four the four creatures for example that are always at the throne. That's Ezekiel. That's almost nowhere else except for Isaiah 6. Ezekiel, the first 12, 14 chapters, these four living creatures, these cherubim, are there. And they're these animal-like things. And that's where John seems to be getting the foundation of the imagery from. It's to get us to think, hey, we're talking about Yahweh. We're not just talking about Jesus alone. It's, it's the God of the Old Testament. And Jesus is the same. And now it's this new angle, dimension to Yahweh that we didn't know before. He's also the Lamb t- type of thing. So there's, that's going to help a lot with these these kinds of things. Oh, okay, well, this leans us, we can't guarantee it, but this will lean us towards, this seems to represent the way he deals with kingdoms. And he's used the idea of horsemen before when he's in this, when he's experiencing visions. That's, this, is, this is how this represents that. And then sometimes, like Ezekiel 9 and 10, Je- Ezekiel has a vision of uh, the leaders of Israel and they're going to get stamped on their forehead with the seal to protect them. Even though in the vision, the people represent people, the vision isn't literally of those people getting stamps and then some getting slaughtered. He's having a vision of them, and they represent God's protection and his judgment on the leadership, on specific individuals within the, the, um, the nation. So there is some sort of precedence for going in and out. You know, like, okay, the, these things represent this, and then I'm also seeing a vision, and and these... For, so, really good, really good question about this one, the altar. If I'm not mistaken... The altar is a vision of the souls that have been beheaded. Right. So, are we, are we supposed to be imagining like headless people? How do headless people talk? Yes. How did he know they were beheaded? Yeah. So, th- so there's a lot even when we look at the very image itself that go, okay, we're not supposed to be taking everything here at at total face value. It seems to represent the people of God who have been persecuted and then remained faithful, right? For their, so it, that's that's. That's a hard, tricky thing that we have to kind of try to look at each case individually and then do our best, the best that we can, using as much of the Bible and of what we see in detail as possible. So that's a long, winded answer to say. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see when we get there.
1: Yeah. And I think too, some of these beasts or creatures, I mean, they could be literal mm-hmm. creation with all the eyes and and around the throne like there are. That he can create that we don't have anything to
0: correlate them with, but it could be. Literally. Yeah, we, <clears throat> we don't want to get lost in that. We know that they represent a being. We just don't want to get lost in are the details of their visual makeup meant for us to, like, oh, put eyes on all of their wings and then it has four faces or are they each one an animal? Like, we don't want to get lost with that. But we do, we do know that ancient cultures believe there are these guardian beasts that were like half-human, that guarded the presence of divinity. So Babylon, on their gates, had a big cherubim that just stood there. And so that that was ancient creatures. That's not a coincidence that in the garden, God puts cherubim in the garden to guard the presence of God. You can't go back in there. So in the temple or the tabernacle that represented the the presence of God, it was imagery of fruit and trees and cherubim on the curtain and on the outer gates. the, The images are all there always but whether they have long necks short necks the babylonian cherubim have really long necks they look like giraffes uh the uh israelite ones don't have long necks they just have four heads <laughs> they're they're these beasts that protect god or his sentries whatever we want to call them so they represent that we just we're just i don't think we're meant to get stuck on you know how many heads what kinds have this and so that, so that when we get there we're like oh you're this guy and uh <laughs> you're this one I don't think that's the goal. It's more, this is God. This is God's presence. So this is, this is what symbolic imagery does. It gets us thinking together and thinking about the Bible, talking about the Bible. That's, that's one of its goals, what we're doing. We're not figuring everything out, but we are getting into it. Right? You're getting into the, to the thing more, and it's capturing your, your imagination. That's, that is a big goal. Of ours today, so we're gonna have another. We're gonna have ima- an image here. We're gonna have two, vi- two images between the sixth and the seventh seal. There's an image of 144,000 individuals being sealed, followed by a vision of an uncountable multitude. An uncountable multitude. So we're gonna to try to look at both of these <clears throat> today, and um, yeah, it's, it's gonna be one of those things where we're gonna try, we're not gonna. Settle it. We are definitely going to try and, and think about what this represents. All right. So here we go. Chapter seven. After after this, after the sixth seal, which, by the way, when we looked at that, it kind of seems to be like the judgment of the end, right? I kind of proposed we view the seven seals as representing the time frame from the Lamb beginning to rule and reign to then when he exercises his wrath, which would be the end. So it's representing the the time frame of. Uh, that we are in the middle of, or at the end of, or <coughs> beginning of, Do we have five thousand more years of human history. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe we have another year left. Whatever, whatever it is, the four horsemen and this altar—they kind of represent this thing where we're still begging for God. How much longer is this going to take? Right? That's been going on for a long time. And then six is six seals. Kind of God's answer. It's going to be this judgment, and people are going to be terrified. They're going to run away from the day of wrath of the Lamb and of God. <clears throat> and then we take a pause here, and there's a vision, and it's going to, I think, speak to us about what's happening with God's people during this time. Uh, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth and holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. There's an, here's another situation. What are we doing with this? Right? Right? And I, I think it's much easier when we're reading this verse. Okay, he's communicating some some sort of spiritual truth here, as opposed to he's talking about no more wind blowing on the planet. That that would mean the entire galaxy had, needed to have frozen, and everything in the physical universe is just nothing works anymore. Right? You can't just stop the earth and have everything else still functioning. The wind and everything that's all. There are no four corners. Right? That we don't believe in a flat earth. Square. Yeah, th- this, this wouldn't function. So it's, it's meant to get you to think, okay, uh, the four, maybe the four judgments that God has unleashed on the earth, But before we think, oh my gosh, it's awful chaos, God's like, yeah, but they're mine. And before they're allowed to do anything, this is what I did first. It's almost like we're taking a step back in time for a minute to answer that question. What is happening with God's people? That, does that make sense so far, what we're saying? We're not, we're not worried about, you know, like winds hurting trees in verse 1 which is probably talking about God saying nothing gets touched. Nothing gets touched until I have separated mine. Right? This is, it's even down to the leaf on a tree. Not even a wind blows on the tree until I have secured my people. It's, it's really intense when you think about how drastic that is. Not even a wind blows on a tree without God knowing whose are his. I saw another angel ascending. This is verse 2 from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given. There's another passive. They were given. The lamb is the one giving anybody the right to do anything. who have been given the power to harm earth and sea. And he said, don't touch the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I did look at this before, but we we'll, now we'll look at it more intense. Do you remember what we what we kind of looked at for this whole thing what What is this idea of sealing on foreheads of all of all places? I know there's a game that we play where we put like something on the forehead and you don't see it, but you have to get have to get everyone to tell you clues to you know who who are you but what is this whole thing about sealing people on on foreheads if we are claiming. what we're talking about are not winds and not four corners we're going to we're going to stay in that flow of thought that we're not also going to look at this thinking we're talking about literal foreheads and like a seal a wax seal or like a cattle seal like on their forehead I don't think that we're meant to be thinking on those on those terms I propose to you that we're probably talking about imagery from Ezekiel again do you remember what we looked at let's all look at it together all right, this this is, I think, clear imagery from God where he is saying, when he talks about sealing people, he is saying, I know those who are mine. I know those who are following me. I am fully aware of them and I'm fully capable of protecting them when I unleash my judgments. I know how to do this and take care of the righteous in, in the midst of chaos. And in the book of Ezekiel, it was just corruption to the Highest level, to priest, to king, to everybody. And almost looks like, is there any anybody who's righteous? And God gives a vision to Ezekiel, like, look, look, I'm going to take you up in the spirit. I'm going to show you something. And he goes straight to, like, the high priest. And he's, you know, I can see what they're doing there. No one else can see. And they're going to be judged. and But so that not everyone gets annihilated, I'm going to go and, and protect those who are mine. And I will not execute my judgments on them. So let's go to Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel 9, where this this vision starts and once i see like you know in the book of john in the book of revelation you know the apostle john using these images from Ezekiel over and over again it's so blatant because there isn't any other place where people are being sealed on their foreheads there is however a very big moment in the bible where god tells people to cover something so that they may not experience judgment do you, can you recall what that is Yeah, yeah, there's, it's not four heads, but the general idea, and Claude, you mentioned this, that some of these judgments that we see, they, they remind us a lot of God judging, like when he did in Egypt, judging the evil nation of Egypt and judgment on their cattle, on their sources of money and power, and the, the sky stuff is like falling from the sky, the waters turning to blood, like you see God saying like all these things that you look to for hope and you worship, they're mine, like they're just my servants. And I'm going to judge all of them so that you see that I'm judging all your gods. And Anyway, that's a different, it's a whole different thing. So there's this, um, I asked you to look at chapter 9 of Ezekiel. And so this is, well, I guess for you to get the feeling of this, um, we should go to chapter 8 first, actually. So you see the, first Ezekiel is going to be shown the abominations that all the leaders are doing. And then God's going to say, can I just do nothing? No. I'm going to execute my judgment, but I will first seal mine. So, let's look at, um, okay, this is just fun for me. So, verse um, 7, no, let's start at verse 5, sorry. This is the stuff in the Old Testament that I really like, that we don't get a lot of in the New. And it's just God being, like, raw and... Honest and sometimes sarcastic, humorous, and then just mad. And we get the whole gamut with God in this and then in the next chapter. So verse five. So he, this is you know, God through the Spirit, Son of man, lift up lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and behold, the north, north of the altar gate, in the entrance, was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me from my sanctuary? Uh-huh. But you're going to see something even worse. So he takes them to the gate, so that's outside the temple. Like, you see what these people are doing? It's awful. Let me show you something even worse. Seven, he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. <laughs> see, this, is, this is just imagery. God taking Ezekiel on the journey through the Spirit. It's a vision. And he's, this is the way he's decided to show him all this stuff. He'll, he'll go up to the little hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of a man, dig in the wall. So I dug the wall. And then there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. It's like the men, Ezekiel said, they're, they're hiding. Go in where they're hiding over there and look at what they're doing. So I went in and I saw and there, engraved on the wall all around was every form of creepy thing and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. In other words, near the temple, some little hole, the priest, had images of all these false gods. God's like, look at all these people out there. They're doing pretty bad, but look at the leadership inside. Like, they look like they're good on the outside as priests, but look at what they're doing inside where no one can see. They have all these false beasts in my temple. <clears throat> Verse 11, And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. So it represents the leadership, right, of the nation. And with Jaznia the son of Shaphan standing among them, each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord, Yahweh, he doesn't see us. He's forsaken the land. He has also said to me, you will see greater abominations that they commit. So I, I'm just getting lost, I'm sorry, in this, this moment. We're probably not going to leave this moment uh, by the time we have to go. But it, it's just this, this isn't literally happening. Right? These people are not literally in dark rooms with images, with censors. It's, it's meant to describe to Ezekiel the apostasy of the priesthood, right? which he was a part of. He was a, part, he was a priest. But he said these, these people, the corruption goes to the highest, and it's nasty. It's awful. They are inside, they are idolaters, the people who are running the the temple. So then he brought me, verse 14, to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there 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 were women, and they were weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz is a god. And he said to me, have you seen this? Can you believe this? Near my house, there are women, Israelite women, and they're crying for Tammuz. You're not supposed to have any other gods. They're like they're all involved in the worship of this false God that they're crying over him. This is ridiculous. So he brought me to the inner court of the house of the Lord. If this if this is wasn't bad enough. And look, at the entrance of the temple between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs to Yahweh, but their faces to the east, worshiping the sun. Right? It gets to the heart of it. They're, they're in my court, their backs are to me. They're, they're completely disrespecting me. And it wasn't that they were literally doing this. The idea was that the priest thought it was okay to at home worship a false god and then come pretend to do service to Yahweh as if as Yahweh didn't notice that. right? As if Yahweh was stuck in the temple and whatever happened outside the temple in a dark room, Yahweh wouldn't notice. right? It's belittling to God. You see how this imagery, it's meant to get you like, to get into it and then start thinking about how profound this is. This, this is the part of the image. I'm trying to build this up for us to when we get to the forehead moment. <clears throat> Verse 17, he said to me, Have you seen this? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abomination that they commit here that they would fill the land with violence and then provoke me further? So it's like you're doing injustice outside, right? In, this, in the civil department, it's already pretty bad. And then you come inside to the temple of my house and you have this garbage in here. So, behold... Uh, where are we? Yeah, they should feel, yeah. Behold, they put the branch to their nose. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But it seems to be like, you know, they, they're just giving it to me. And, and they don't care. I don't know what the expression in Hebrew is to put the branch to the nose. I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare. I'm not going to have pity. And even if they cry in my ears, I ain't going to listen to them. Right? They They've been hardened of heart entirely. So... <clears throat> verse 9 uh, chapter 9 verse 1 so then he cried in my ears with a loud voice this is god all right bring near the executioners of the city each with his destroying weapon in hand and behold six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand and with them a man clothed in linen with a riding case at his waist and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar so this is a vision. This isn't literally happening. This is just a vision that Ezekiel is having. Ezekiel's not even in Jerusalem potentially at this point. He's just seeing what's happening there. And God's saying, All right, I'm I'm visualizing something for you. I'm going to execute. And he names leaders, right? He we saw him naming some of the leaders before. I am I'm going to end them for their rebellion against me. Verse three. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub. This is this angelic creature. On which it rested to the threshold of the house, and he called to the uh, to the men clothed in living who had the writing case at his waist. And Yahweh said, "Go through the city, at, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it." So, in other words, all the people who mourn this rejection of Yahweh, all the ones who truly want to follow God, I know who they are. Go and go seal them, right? My judgments aren't going to just come on indiscreetly and annihilate everybody. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not like that. I'm going to go seal and protect those who are mine. Verse five. And to the others, he said, "Am I hearing you pass through the city after after the seal and then strike? Your eye shall not spare, and you shall not show pity. Kill old men. Kill. Okay. We don't. We don't I read this last time. We don't need to get into all that. The point is, everybody who is in rebellion against me, they will all get. They will all get it. I'm not going to spare anyone. I'm not going to forget anybody. And on the other hand, all those whom are mine, I know them. I will seal them. I will protect them. I will judge righteously. So we're not supposed to get the idea that guys just get angry and then he lets loose. That's not the idea. But he is intense. And he does seal those who are his. And here, the forehead seal is not a literal seal. No one, as far as we know, during the exile was sealed with something on their forehead. It just represented these are God's people. I'm I'm protecting them. I know who they are right to the core of who they are right right there on their forehead. I see them and I will make sure that they don't endure my direct wrath. They're going to get indirectly affected because they're going to be exiled but they're not going to be under the wrath of God like these others are. So are we good so far with that like how intense this imagery is and this is the only other place in the Bible where this is here and then we get to Revelation and it shows up again And then when we see John repeatedly using images from this book, I think we're safe to say we're probably not talking about foreheads. We're probably not talking about a literal seal on somebody's head with with, with a name or whatever it is. We're probably talking about God preserving and protecting his own and never losing sight of where they are or what's happening so that the judgments and chaos we see unleashed from, from the Lamb's throne room, they're not directly coming at his people. They, they might be around the situation in the middle of it, but they are being directly unleashed on on those. And we will see that more clearly in the other visions where God says, It's on those who are rebelling against me. It's on those who refuse to accept me. I'm dealing with them in my own way. Was that it? A- so
1: yeah, so then is hundred and forty four thousand a literal number?
0: Then we keep going step by step, right? Mm-hmm. So if if we go from that, where we're we're probably not talking about foreheads. I feel safe when I keep going. Okay, what, what, is he, what is he trying to get at then? So let's go back there. What is he trying to get at when we get to Revelation 7? And uh, God, if God is, or John, God through John is invoking this imagery of protection, of sealing. Like before you go unleash the judgments of harm, then make sure you, you seal up those and, and protect those. So God's, God's never going to indiscriminately unleash his, his judgments on the earth. Verse 4, I heard the number of the sealed, and they were 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And it's like, wait a second, Israel hasn't been mentioned at all in this book. It's like it's just been God, God speaking to his bride, the church, in the first few chapters. 4 and 5, no mention of Israel. But we have mentioned of the kingdom of God, the God establishing a kingdom, and these are his. So there, there is, it's just weird if this shows up like this. What, what would this be doing here? right and so <clears throat> if we're reading the book the way that we're proposing it this is a, referencing the time period of now and these are describing the people of God then then we're going to have to reckon a little bit with this the sealed we'll start with the number 144,000 there's a whole like cult that spawned out of this whole number that right? okay you guys are nodding cuz you're familiar with the 144,000 that took this ultra literally like there's literally going to be a down to the 0.0, 144,000 individual people, maybe ethnic Jews or maybe Christians who are going to be like invincible supermen of the day of God's wrath, and they will just survive. No one will be able to touch them, and they'll be sealed for for a specific purpose that is never fully described here, if that's the case. But um, 144,000, so uh, you asked the question, but what do we do with that number? I'm gonna lean. I, I'm gonna start off my foot with foreheads aren't literal. Four winds aren't literal. We're to, we're talking about ideas that I'm gonna go with. Let me start with what happens if I go with 144,000 being another symbol, right? What what would that be? We have a a list of who are sealed, which is just fascinating, right? We have a list of the 12 tribes of Israel. 12,000 for me. So first, I look at that. It's already like it's even from each one. These weren't evenly sized tribes. They were, Ephraim and Manasseh were just disproportionately enormous from the other ones, even from land, let alone population. And so it, it just would strike me as weird that if this is literal numbers, that they don't even correspond to the sizes, right? It's really, it's really bad that, uh, where, is, where is he here? Manasseh only gets 12. He only gets 12,000, even though he's like enormous. Now, I said Ephraim and Manasseh. Did you notice that uh, Ephraim is not in here? Do you know why he may, maybe he wouldn't be listed in the list like this? Especially if we're talking, if we're supposed to be understanding this to be literally the 12 tribes of Israel. Why would Ephraim be left out? He was one of the twelve.
1: When I read through it um, earlier this week, I had a different Bible. I had my um, life application Bible, and it mentioned that. And it said because they were rebellious, they didn't stay um, true to God, and that they were replaced with... Who was, who, Manasseh wasn't an <coughs> Neither w- was Joseph's son. Yeah, and I yeah. and I. So was Ephraim. Yeah. right. They were both his children. That Joseph. It was because of their um, like the reason they're omitted is because they didn't stay loyal to God.
0: Yeah, I mean that that's a like that's a good theory. If if we're trying to figure that puzzle out, we'd have to come up with a reason, right? If we are looking for literal twelve thousand from from the twelve tribes, we'd have to go. Whoa. If there's one that's left out, that's not fair. Dan is that's not just Ephraim; it's Dan, because.
1: And, and it said that I just I was like I remember reading it. I don't remember what they said, but then I remember that it was something to do with their unfaithfulness. And who was replaced with were people that didn't follow in
0: faithfulness. Then the question would be: Do they are they represented as being more rebellious than the others? Right? Are they represented in the Bible in the Old Testament as? Like, oh my gosh, Ephraim! They were the worst. Does the Bible portray Ephraim that way? No, they are all pretty bad. None of them are described as being holier or better in any way than the others. So that would be one thing I'd like, if we're looking for a little, if we're keeping the numbers literal and the tribes literal, these are little snags that they're not like, uh, you know, game change. They're not like, doesn't ruin the possibility, but it just just gets, why is that not there? Levi is not supposed to, Levi doesn't have anything. It wouldn't make any sense. He's like, he's a priestly tribe. He was never counted as part of the twelve tribes. So it, why exclude Dan? Why exclude uh, Ephraim? And then Joseph is was never a tribe. He doesn't have a tribe. His two kids are two tribes. It, that wouldn't also make sense. It'd be like no one. There's nobody from the tribe of Joseph. L- literally, all right? So that all those things are kind of like that. I I once we go with the path of okay. Maybe this is just describing ev- the point here is like everybody, all of my people, right? That maybe the point I'm going through a thousand or twelve. That's gonna be my guess. Right? no one knows why twelve thousand exactly. There is no secret mathematical formula. I feel like we are safe when we we're we're safer. I feel like going. Well, okay, this is supposed to represent everybody, all of the people of God, ev- all those who are His. God is never lost count and then look at the contrast we're gonna have to end I see if we just had 15 more minutes but look at the contrast in these two side by side we have like a very specific number from a specific number of tribes and then what's the second imagery
1: an
0: uncountable multitude I don't think those are accidentally side by side very specific and then an uncountable multitude and this is what I think this is getting at these are two images of the same thing the people of God, highly specified. The point is, I haven't lost one of them. Not even a hair on any one of their heads. Like, every single one are mine. And then the other one, well, how many are there? There's a bunch of them. Like, these are two contradictory images that are meant to be put together. Just like the lion of the, uh, lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Who is he? He's the lamb. Those things don't go together, but they're being put smack together. I think this is the same thing. 12,000 from a tribe uncountable multitude. These are talking about the people of God in two different aspects of the people of God and God's knowledge of them. So we'll, we're gonna, we'll, we'll start with this next week. We'll look at the, we we're supposed to do this today, but we'll look at the imagery today, uh, next week, of how do these two things work together and how do they together complement who the people of God are and what do they say about them. So for now it's just God has sealed them, he's protected them, God watches over every single one of us and we are not there's no way a little bit of his wrath can spill out onto us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's not possible. That's not how this works. He's he's got us, so we should not fear the chaos of the judgment. That's what people say. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to endure. Like, well, we have to endure life, but the point here is like we're no, none of us are enduring the direct wrath of God in our life because that has that we've been sealed from that. Yeah, we, we, we wouldn't even like eh, it'd be in uh, yeah. an instant. So. Okay, read, read, read chapter 7 again if you have a chance. If you want to read you know, chapter 6 through 20 to get all these images in your head and get massively overwhelmed, do that, do that too. Enjoy that experience. But we're going to focus on the second half of chapter 7, who the multitude is, look at how they're described, and how God takes care of them. Okay, folks, 9.55. I, I figured
1: that in writing this, they got a personality like mine.